Welcome back to another episode of Nope Country, where we talk about country music and what it means. Hi guys. Hi, I'm your host, Patrick Michaels. And I'm Andrea Grimes. And we're here in the Nope Country recording studio with all of our sound technicians asleep so many on the bed. many sound technicians. Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at, at Andrea Grimes for a photo of our sleeping sound team. <laughs> I'm at Patrick Michaels, and I'll be sending some links out to uh, some of the stuff we've, we've read to go along with the show as well. Uh-huh. So first off, I'll apologize in advance to the listeners and apologize after the fact to you, Andrea, <laughs> for <laughs> the afternoon we spent watching this horrible movie, Urban Cowboy. The worst movie. Uh, it's which, the worst movie I've ever seen. It's pretty bad. Uh, I felt like... okay. First thing I wanted to get out of the way is why we're doing this. Yeah, uh, it's, fucking tell me why I did that thing. It's an outgrowth of our last episode about Dwight Yoakam. Uh, and what I read in the biography about him was that a lot of his career was a response to the urban cowboy movement, uh, which had been such a such a craze across the country and had really changed the way that things go in Nashville. And that Dwight is not really an urban cowboy kind of sound as much as like he's a L.A. country kind of guy, Urban Cowboy was not his thing. We're talking about something very different. But that what he was doing was a response to the Urban Cowboy thing that had sort of taken hold. And I didn't know much about that. A response like a middle finger response? or yes. like, okay. like to the extent that Dwight Yoakam is like, uh, not a wholesome, punk, punk sweet, country. delightful friend. Yeah, this is, what, this is what it was about, was a response to that. I feel like I understand a little bit better now, especially having listened to the music, you know, what urban cowboy music is about. I mean, it's what, like softer, kind of like easy listening country. Uh, I I mean, are we taking as the paradigmatic example of looking for love in all the wrong places? Sure. Yeah. The Johnny Lee song. That's the sort of the the big hit song. Who is in fact name checked in like one of my top favorite pop country songs. I was going to ask you, do you feel differently listening to Chris Young sing Neon now that you've experienced a Johnny Lee song? I do like the name drop seems kind of different to me now, I guess because I wasn't I and still don't know anything about Johnny Lee, I suppose. But I always thought of that line in Neon as being like a about being legitimate, like about like it's like a callback to authenticity. And now it's just having seen Urban Cowboy, in which Johnny Lee's "Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places" is like the theme song. It's like when somebody's just trying to be like a cool person, and they think that they're gonna like talk about a thing that you care about in a really smart way, and they just fuck it up just real bad <laughs> i think the johnny lee reference uh works well like I, I feel like i get something out of it now that i've seen the movie because it, it's about a bar with a bunch of neon lights and it really yes, sets the mood right i think that there's a consistent mood uh that chris young is getting at that, yes that i mean that's con- true so i think that one thing that's that's hard to to reckon with having watched this movie and seeing how bad it is is how like what kind of effect it had on the culture and the country at, at the time when it came out. So this movie came out in 1980. Some statistics that I have found in, yeah, in reading about this me. film. After the movie came out, the Western wear industry sales grew 30%. Tony Lama boots uh, doubled its profits. They had to build two new manufacturing plants. Wow. Country music in particular was a beneficiary of this. It wasn't just the fashion. In the year after the movie came out, 100 radio stations across the country flipped format to country. What? Yeah. That's crazy. And Kenny Rogers, in 1982, Kenny Rogers, who had a single on this soundtrack, signed the largest recording contract uh, in history for $20 million. So this is like pre-Garth, you know, yeah. he's like the biggest thing in music all. At all because of this dipshit fucking movie? One more thing. Okay. 
the mechanical bull, you'll recall, I, figures prominently figure in prominently. the film. So Gillies, uh, where the, the movie takes place, started selling mechanical bulls after that like, movie came that out. Like you can have at home on your patio for your when you're having your Labor Day grilling party? Well, because honky-tonks <laughs> were so popular. Mm. So people were opening up honky-tonks everywhere. And then they'd, they'd want a mechanical bull as well. Wow. It'd be like four or 5000 bucks to get this thing. But people were riding them so much that there was a new kind of injury that developed. <laughs> <laughs> and so in 1981, in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, there was an article called The Urban Cowboy Syndrome. Oh <laughs> it's, a, it's a case study of 20 patients who all got the same kind of injuries. Uh, they had three things in common. They said they all suffered an orthopedic injury. They all had <laughs> no previous bull riding experience. <laughs> and they had all consumed alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> that, those are the three hallmarks of urban cowboy syndrome. <laughs> There's another in 2000. 2000- I, like, I like that. Like the key one key tenet is is not actually a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> in 2003, there was another article. The article was called "The Urban Cowboy Syndrome Revisited," Ooh. and it's a case report of severe straddle injury resulting in symphysis diastasis, urethral injury, Ooh. and significant retroperitoneal hematoma. None of which I want to Google Peritoneal hematoma it. sounds like a thing I real, real bad don't want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they always joke in the movie about how, like, your balls, balls hurt, hurt afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> like, plenty of people went to the ER wow. from actual injuries from mechanical bulls. Well, yeah, so. they're, they're dangerous. Did you ever did you ever ride one? Huh? We talked about this yeah. a little bit. You, yes. you did one at Gillies in Dallas? I think it, I, it was either Gillies in Dallas or if Billy Bob's has one, it was at Billy Bob's. Mm. Uh... But I want to say it's more likely that it was at Gillies in Dallas because I think the Dallas Observer had their annual party there one year, and I wrote it then. How'd you do? Fell off immediately. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. I rode one in Fairbanks. There was a bar there that had one. <laughs> that <laughs> like, were, you, were you like with your buddies, or were you drinking alone and thought you'd have a turn at the bull? At no, the I, was, I was with my buddies. Okay. You know, we were all kind of... <laughs> we I did it just... once, though. I didn't like obsessively stare at everyone right. who was on the, the mechanical bull, <laughs> which is talk... what John Travolta does. <laughs> you talk about your time in Alaska as if you were just like alone, constantly staring at the Aurora Borealis, I mean, which I is li- why I asked if you if were hanging out with anybody when you rode the bull. I did live alone in a cabin that summer, but <laughs> <laughs> I went to the bar with friends. <laughs> um, You're saying you didn't derive every ounce of your masculinity from the, your performance on the bull vis-a-vis other people's performances on the bull. I don't think anyone did well. And there was an army base there. I mean, most of the people at the bar were like army guys. Mm-hmm. Nobody did well. Like, there's that moment in the movie when, when Deborah Winger walks up to John Travolta and says, are you a real cowboy? And then she says something later about how Scott Glenn, who's like the bad boy. He's a real cowboy. He's like, he is actually a rodeo rider, cowboy. Mm -hmm. And he's like a bank robber who's been to prison and he wears a black mesh shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Shirt, I just don't even, I can't, I'm so confused by that. Really strange wardrobe choice there. (laughs) Somehow though, I'll be like, I guess he's a real cowboy. John Travolta, who's from the tiny town who comes to Houston, not so much. But like this question of authenticity, I mean, it's in the name of the movie, Mm -hmm. Urban Cowboy, uh, and trying to decide who's a real cowboy anymore in America. And so the story of of how the movie came about, it came out of an Esquire story 
from 1978. So this is the 40th anniversary of that Esquire oh, story well, we're right. celebrating this year. <laughs> uh, and it was assigned by a magazine editor named Clay Felker, who was also the guy who assigned the story that became Saturday Night Fever. So John wow. Travolta in both of these, same magazine editor behind both of these. Apparently this magazine editor had been in Texas giving a talk at Rice University on invitation from Texas Monthly. Mm -hmm. And Bill Broyles, uh, the Texas Monthly editor, took him to Gillies to like show this New Yorker a good time. And, you know, the story is that, that he uh, got back to his hotel room at three in the morning and called this magazine writer, uh, Aaron Latham, like that night and, and was like, you got to get down here and write this story. It's going to be huge. He must have been so fucking jazzed when he identified the next Saturday Night Fever. Right. You said even the beginning of the movie begins the way that Saturday Night yes. Fever does. Yeah, they're very similar. They start with John Travolta being a little shitbag eating breakfast and trying to get ready for his day and like leaving or whatever oh he's so bad yeah he's, he's just the, I mean, this whole movie he's so bad <laughs> so so the story in the magazine is about a couple named Dew and betty and the movie it's bud and sissy and it's basically the, the magazine story is the same story that you see in the film down to like some of the the same dialogue as well, so it's it's sort of surprising that like not a why lot. Why about what about any of that qualified as to make a magazine story in Esquire? It's new journalism is the thing. Like this guy was a big like new journal. This is like the moment when new journalism. Well, I mean, is happening. I get, it's just it's boring. <laughs> nothing happens. It's so nothing boring. happens. Like the story, and especially in the magazine story, it's all about their relationship, which is already over. At that point, they're like an so eighteen and nineteen like year old. So it's just like a fucking wanky ass wanker time thing about like some dude identifies these two yokels and is going to explore America through the failed relationship of a couple of shit kickers. Absolutely cool. Yes, and so the story that he, the way that he tells it, is like America is lost right now, and people everywhere. There's like changes happening in a way that it has not happened before, <laughs> and when that happens, when America is lost, it goes back to its its primal tropes and it's, it's primal heroes and that hero is the cowboy and so we're going to tell you about the new cowboy and it's this guy do who works at a petrochemical plant during the day at this shitty job and then at night goes to the nightclub where he like acts like a cowboy uh-huh you know and he has a, a hat and a shirt and like jeans like a cowboy but it's not the same it's a right. different all that stuff but the phenomenon of the urban cowboy or of honky-tonking and whatever on the scale of which you described early in the podcast happened after this article came out i think there's a couple <laughs> things like i think that this movie didn't totally get caused some of that but you can't it gets blamed a lot for like what happened in nashville afterwards but i think that from from what i've read it it wasn't totally the movie's fault. It was like the movie contributed to it, but it was also this whole story was kind of riding this wave that was already. So happening. there was an underlying cultural zeitgeist around country and western stuff. I in think the that late 70s. that zeitgeist was not about America being uniquely lost or driftless no. and needing cowboys in a way it didn't before. But what was happening was the Arab oil embargo made Texas oil much more right. valuable and and so business was booming in Houston it's the same thing that made Dallas such a thing it's right. like Texas became interesting to the country because all of a sudden Texas had money so the other thing that was happening that does happen in the story is that guys like Bud go from their small towns to work in Houston and find themselves not knowing anybody Just in some having the city. odd threesome as you do on your first night, <laughs> your uncle takes you to the bar. <laughs> you have a go threesome. clubbing with Aunt Corrine and Uncle Bob, and then you go home and bone a bunch of ladies. 
So, like, it's also not even, like, a coming of age or, like, man figures his shit out. It's the most pedestrian possible TikTok of a bad relationship. The other thing is that there's no character development with Bud. He is a fucking dipshit yokel who is so nervous getting his first job that he's, like, jibber-jabbering and, you know, embarrassing himself in front of the oil man who's hiring him. And then the next night, he's Don Juan doing all of this cowboy line dance and yeehaw and the smoothest motherfucker who ever lived. Like, he couldn't string a sentence together at the, in the first nine hours of the movie. And he was way <laughs> and less in the obnoxious. second 36 hours of the movie, he's the coolest dude who ever lived. <laughs> I liked him a lot better at the start <laughs> before he talked. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. I think a thing that I liked about the film... is the one is it like it really i felt like i I got to see that world oh it was very atmospheric what like gillies was like this giant dance hall in pasadena texas in the late 1970s like and the like real people who hung out at that bar in the movie like the punching bag that's in there the mechanical bull like those are the real things the people who sang on stage there are in the movie too and so as like an artifact of that time in Texas, I thought it was pretty cool. Yes, I agree. I wish they told any other story than Just that. Just literally any other story. Can we talk about um, the sexism? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, I don't think it's useful to separate. It's the, basically the sexism it from the, the concept of the rest of the film. The film is about men fighting over who gets to hit Deborah Winger. Yes. That's what the movie is about. I think another major point of conflict is, is Deborah Winger allowed to ride the mechanical and bull? Is, and is, what what havoc is Deborah Winger going to wreak upon the patriarchy of Houston when slash if she rides the mechanical bull? So much of the fighting was just about whether she can do this thing that John Travolta said that she couldn't. And yes. it turns out she can. That's in the magazine story, too. There's a, like a large chunk about... The women fighting uh, with men over whether they're allowed to ride the mechanical bull. That's actually what the characters divorced over, was that question. Uh, no. And it turns out, uh, there's like the section of the story talks about how much better all the women are at riding the mechanical bull than the men. And why, like, that's one reason why everyone's so sad about it. All the men are, like, so upset about it is because the women are better. Because the it. women are better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there you go. That's your patriarchy in a nutshell. Is like, we can't have nice things because fucking dudes gonna go cry about it okay the thing though also and that's this is why i say like that the concept of sexism or misogyny it seems stupid to talk about to even name it because it's so baked into the the essence of what the movie is about it's not like it's not that the movie is about that the movie is misogyny like it just is it it is replete with it in ways that make the film indistinguishable from the concept of sexism. Mm-hmm. Like there's a line at one point where they're fighting about is Deborah Winger allowed to ride the mechanical bull, and she says to John Travolta, "Like you're not my daddy," and he goes, "I'm your husband, and it's the next best thing." Like that's it, bam! Like yep. that is the fucking like it's it's so creepy, and so but like I don't. Did you get a sense of whether people at the time thought it was fucking meatballs? I don't know either, and I kept wondering, like... Because, like, there was... A, feminism had existed... Like, I understand that, like, you know, we're not living in a time of perfect gender equality now either, but, like... Fucking people knew better in 1980. 
do you think that, I mean, I was trying to decide whether that in the movie is a comment, is supposed to be a commentary on Texas or country people, or if Hollywood, which we know, especially <laughs> right. in the 1970s, yeah. is exactly that fucked up. And it, it's just one thing reflecting the other in, you know, the same messed up value system. I didn't get the sense that the domestic abuse and the fundamental misogyny of the film, that, that the film itself was supposed to be a negative commentary on either of those things. Yeah. I think that for both of us, that scene, uh, like one of the most remarkable things in that movie of just how awful it was, is the scene when John Travolta and Deborah Winger are in the diner. And he hits her the first time. Yes! And they fight and they go out into the parking lot. And then they roll around in the puddle. There's an interview. So this interview, it's an oral history of the of the movie uh -huh. on its 35th anniversary in Texas Monthly by John Spong. One of the guys he talks to is Aaron Latham, the magazine writer who wrote the story. He also wrote the screenplay, which like, uh. you know, the way that it was, as soon as the magazine came out, he was getting calls like nonstop. Like this thing just like made a million dollars instantly uh -huh. for this guy. So, so Latham wrote the screenplay, uh, and he says, The parking lot scene was supposed to be funny, uh, but nobody laughed when we played it for them. No! So, we added some banjo music, and then everybody got it. <laughs> and that's how it felt in the thing. Like, it was so awkward, but then the banjo music comes in, and you're like, they're trying to yeah, they're like trying. It's tell a joke to be here. Like ha ha, look, like no, nothing about that movie is funny. There aren't any jokes in the movie. Like yeah. apart, even even if even if okay, that part's supposed to be funny. Then if so, it's the only joke in the movie. There's that really good joke that John Travolta tells at the diner, and that's right before he holds up Deborah Winger's hand with a wedding ring on it and yells, look at it, she's mine, <laughs> and then throws a hamburger bun. And then Scotland. they go fight in the parking lot. And then they go fight in the parking lot. Over who's going to get to hit Deborah Winger next. Do you know Deborah Winger was kind of a hellraiser? She was like the like Lindsay Lohan. Oh, of Hollywood of, at the time? Hall yeah. I didn't know that. Um, she and Shirley MacLaine were in terms of endearment together, and they fucking hated each other. And, like, couldn't, like, Shirley MacLaine just wanted to, like, do a whole murder on Deborah Winger. And they were both nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars. And Shirley MacLaine won. And when she won, she stood up and yelled, I deserved it! There's some, some of that in this oral history of the movie, too. That, that uh, the woman who plays Pam, John Travolta's other love interest oh, yeah. in this, uh, like, didn't get along with Deborah Winger either. And, like, particularly, like, there was one day they were doing a, a table read or something, and Deborah Winger just, like, flipped out and, and <laughs> said she was, like, tired of her shit for some reason. But she's a very, like, she was, like, a method actress in this. I see. She slept outside in the cemetery the night before that funeral scene oh my in the God. movie. Oh, my God. Fucking, uh She's also a fucking Roman Polanski apologist, so... <laughs> what about the woman who lives in uptown Houston and goes to Gillies and was looking for a real cowboy? And Pam? Finds Yes, Pam. I know her name. <laughs> what about her, Patrick? Well, I thought I turned the volume up there, even though you were wondering why I wanted to hear the movie at the time. But when, <laughs> when they go back to her apartment and she's sort of like explaining her whole thing, I thought it was, I thought it, what we were getting a little bit of was like the redneck and blue blood narrative of yes. like, right. I thought that was interesting to hear, you know, there was like another Good element yes. coming into yeah. the film that wasn't just people from small towns yes. going to the dance club. I mean, I think Pam is supposed to be the like, like in the context of urban cowboy, if Bud is a real cowboy, then Pam is not a real cowgirl. And like, she's supposed, to, I like, it's funny that a movie that is so deeply inauthentic about that people playing at being cowboys like has to have an element in it to represent 
even more not a cowboy, but pretending to be cowboy. It's like a giant stupid poser fight. Just all the, <laughs> all the posers in the lunchroom are just <laughs> kicking each other's asses with their rip-off Doc Martens. <laughs> no cowboys in this movie. Also, no people of color in this movie. No, this was a very fucking white film. Entirely. Entirely white. So white. Did you hear the line when Scott Glenn is drinking, is regaling Deborah Winger with <laughs> with the story of tequila with a worm in the bottle? <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> and then I think he takes a shot and he says, ah, La Vida Luna, the crazy life. <laughs> La Vida Luna? <laughs> Which is another one of those, like... La Vida Luna? Are, like, are they telling a joke or did nobody in the production <laughs> like know how to speak Spanish? Knew. But the whiteness of the movie, the thing that, like, they don't talk about in the Esquire story or in the film... What I think is important is the idea of this as a disco backlash mm -hmm. in the 70s, which is funny because John Travolta popularizing both of these things. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but that was part of the reason that country became so popular at this time was disco backlash was happening, uh, even though that was like a, supposed to be a rock thing. It was like a Detroit uh -huh. rock kind of, kind of thing. Right. But um, when the disco backlash happened, country music benefited a great deal, too. Yeah, um, well, I think I think you'll find that both in country music and rock and roll music, there is a strong bias against queerness and people of color. I think that country and rock and roll, in their worst iterations, have that in common. I, I feel like as bad as this movie was, it was sort of surprising that there's never a racist or a homophobic thing that anyone says. Yeah, like there's no F-bombs in it. There's no, It's just like, not an issue. It's like totally yeah. unspoken, but... Which is has got to be a, an inaccurate representation of that culture at yeah. that time. And that, that suburban Houston could actually be that white? Oh, fuck no. Right? Like, um, no. Like, it's just, like, a, the idea of an all-white Houston is just, like, preposterous. So strange. And probably, like, I mean, I believe that Gillies was a destination for white people, for sure. But, like, there are no, like, dudes of color who work on the oil rig. Or, mm -hmm. like, there's no servers in the cafes that aren't white like mm -hmm. just nobody around town is of color at all did you as a texan did that movie make you think did you feel like it was a accurate depiction of a texas that you know or did it make you think differently at all about texas i mean it made me want to go hang out at gillies or billy bob's like it reminded me especially living in san francisco that like i like places like that and i want to go line dancing and like you know, do my little yeehaw scarecrow dance uh -huh. and such. Uh, but that wasn't the Texas that I grew up in anyway. Like, I grew up in the boring... Well, although fucking this... It's the exact the Texas that I grew up in, actually, but not culturally. It's the thing that I'm familiar with. Although my mom definitely bought a pair of Justin boots in 1981, and I guarantee you... She did it because it was fashionable. That's the heart of this thing. And not, and not because... Well, she says she bought them to go see Willie Nelson in concert, which I believe. But I still have those boots. They're delightful. I fucking wore the soles out of those boots, and I think my mom probably only ever wore them once. That's a total urban cowboy story right yeah, there. Indeed. Apparently the whole thing ended like by the middle of 1982. It mm -hmm. just was not even a thing anymore. Uh, we also watched the Midland video for Burnout. Yes! Which is a reference to Urban Cowboy. So good. I think the story in that three-minute video mm -hmm. is better so than much the two-hour, 15 So minutes. much more complete. It's <laughs> the, the treatment of women in the three-minute video is just... They do a lot more work, I think. <laughs> better work than they do in the two-hour plus. 
uh, of Urban Cowboy. But the in the Midland video, there are there's the bad guy who wears the mesh shirt. Yes. Uh, who's the Scott Glenn, I guess. And then the girl, the woman in the Midland video is, I think, to me, appears to be Pam and not mm-hmm. Deborah Winger. Did you know Deborah Winger also took a job as a waitress at Gillies before she got oh, the role? Oh, come on! <laughs> just, just for practice. Interestingly enough, I believe the the actress in the Midland video is a woman of color. Her name is is Xian Mikol, and it says on her Instagram that she's Chinese, Irish, German, and Norwegian. Uh, anyway, um, I remember noting that. Well, I mean, I noted it because it's obvious that that video is like an actual representation of what humanity looks like, and not the whitewashed nightmare hellscape of uh, Urban Cowboy. Anyway, just one of the many ways in which the Midland video for Burnout is so much better than the actual movie Urban Cowboy and approximately nine or ten years shorter than... I guess maybe that's just a nice note to end on is with some <laughs> advice yeah. to anyone out there. If Don't you... watch Urban Cowboy. Go watch the video for Midland's Burnout. It has hot ladies and hot dudes and actual representation of people. A good story. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much. There's so much that's not in the video that you won't miss. It's much better. Yes. Well, let's never watch that again. Nope. Fuck that movie. (laughs) You heard it here first. (laughs) Okay. See y'all next time. Bye, y'all.